I don't even need caffeine this morning. I'm just so excited. I'm serious. Like, I don't know. I feel like the protons in my body, are, is that what bodies are made of? Are just like shaking because I'm so happy to see everybody together. It's just so valuable to see other faces, to be with people, to be in the same room, to know your names. Uh, in fact, I was so excited, I put two exclamation points next to my name. So I'm not Patrick, I'm Patrick. So <laughs> glad, glad that you're here this morning. Super, super excited. But for now, first, Second, third, John. Uh, go ahead and bring up the next slide if you would, because first John starts in the middle of a thought. It's like you meet somebody for the first time and they, the first thing they say to you is, as I was saying, and you're like, wait a second, we haven't, this is the first we've been talking here. But he starts right in the middle of a thought. And he writes, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, you got to pause here for a second. He's saying, Jesus spoke, and my eardrums reverberated with the sound of his voice. He's not saying, I heard it from a friend of a friend who told his roommate, who had his ex-wife, who told their friend, and it finally came to me. He's saying, I heard the voice of Jesus speak. He's saying, the photoreceptors in my eyes translated the light bouncing off Jesus' skin, and I could see it, and it translated into images in my brain. I saw Jesus. I was a witness. I saw him. I heard him. He says, I, I touched him. I touched his skin. I touched his clothes. He was real. He was tangible. And it's interesting that he starts off his letter like this, saying that this is grounded in my first-hand, first-person experience, because he's claiming that everything he's about to say in this book is anchored in this idea, that I heard it. So he goes on to say, uh, this life appeared, this is verse 2, this life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We're bringing you into the circle. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, that's great for John. He was there. He talked to Jesus. He saw Jesus. But we haven't. We heard it from our parents. I heard it from my parents who brought me to church all my life and from my Sunday school teachers and from the preachers that I sat under when I was growing up. I heard it from my aunts and uncles. I didn't, I didn't get to see Jesus. So, I mean, how do I know? How can I know that I know? How do I have that sort of experience? And John's going to talk a little bit of, about that. How many of you remember the oldies song? Um, it's not called this, but this is probably what you know it as. It's In His Kiss. Yeah, some of you are like, oldies, what are those? You would be surprised what they play on the oldie station nowadays. It's stuff from when I was alive, and that's really disturbing. Like, classic rock is like, I remember when that song came out, and that's classic. Oh, my goodness. Oldies, that's bad news. But this is a song that's really old. It came out in 1964, so really, really old. <laughs> by Betty Everett, and it's actually called the Shoop Shoop song, which I didn't want to say publicly, but anyway, I had to say those words. They came out of my mouth, and it was a big hit for her in 1964. Um, now, the, the premise of the song, this is immediately what I thought of when I was thinking about First John, which is weird, but, but the, the premise of the song is, does he love me? I want to know. How can I tell if he loves me so? And then the background singers say, is it in his eyes? And Betty Everett says, no, 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 that's not the way. Uh, is it in his smile? Nope, you, you can't tell that. Is it in his face? Nope. And of course, the premise of the song, the whole chorus of the song, Betty Everett says it's in his... Yeah. 
is, right? And we all know that to be true. That's how you discovered your first love, the first time you kissed. That's how you said, this is the one, right? No, not at all. In fact, it's terrible advice. It's awful advice. And I'm not sure anybody's ever, ever taken it seriously, but it's a terrible message. In fact, it sounds like the background singers are a little suspicious, and it sounds like they're saying, like, okay, hold on, Betty Everett. Uh, how about the way he acts? Because that seems like that would be a really good way to find out if he loves you. And she says, no, that's not the way, and you're not listening to me. So she doubles down on this idea that, nope, you got to kiss. That's the way that you know. So youth group, I'm telling you, this is not true. In fact, some of you are suspicious. You're saying, actually, the lyrics must have been written by a guy, right? I mean, yeah, it sounds, oh, how, this is how you know, honey, we got a kiss, and that's how you're going to really know. It sounds like a guy wrote these lyrics. Turns out it was a guy. Rudy Clark penned this song in 1963. It's a guy giving terrible advice. Now, I'm sure Rudy Clark didn't have mixed motives, but it's not, it's not a good idea. You should never, if somebody says this, hey, you really want to know if we got a connection here? We're going to have to make out, honey. What, what should the ladies do if a guy says that? Run. Run. Don't walk. Run away. Totally written by a dude. Hopefully nobody has taken Mr. Clark's very uh, popular advice because it bounces around in my head when I'm reading 1 John and I'm thinking, how do you know? Then Betty Everett's song comes into my mind. How do you know? Well, it's in his kiss. Well, that doesn't work. <laughs> so how does this work with God? Because the angst of uncertainty is very relatable, whether it's a romantic relationship or whether it's a relationship that you have with uh, a friend or a neighbor or a relationship that you have with God. The angst of uncertainty is relatable. How do I I know that God is there and that he actually loves me. I mean, it says it in the Bible, but is that real? Is that true? Is that definitive? How do you know? Now, 1 John is full of definitive statements. It's full of how do you know statements. And this is really valuable. This is the reason why some of us love this letter so much, because it's full of statements like this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That's helpful. That gives me something tangible to grab onto. Or this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And then he goes on to explain it's through the spirit God gave us. That's very helpful to know. Like, okay. I write these things, this is chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Despite all this, despite John's best efforts, there are still a lot of people who struggle with the angst of uncertainty in a relationship with God. And I can tell you, sometimes reading through a book like this feels like somebody threw you a life preserver in the middle of the ocean and you have something to hold on to even for a little bit. Some of you struggle with doubt. And I will put myself in that category. Have any of you ever struggled with doubt? You don't have to raise your hand uh, because it can feel like a stigma. Because people feel like, oh, if you struggle with doubt, you must not have enough faith. You must not be a good, solid Christian. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that there are two kinds of doubt. I think there's one kind of doubt that says, hmm, I don't know the answer to that, and I want to explore, and I want to discover, and it sparks my curiosity, and I'm not sure what I think about that, but I wonder, and I want to grow in the knowledge that, that God has given us in the world. And that's one kind of doubt that instigates exploration. But I think there's another kind of doubt that tries to keep you from the answers, but tries to make you suspicious that the answers aren't very good, and doesn't want you to explore, and doesn't want you to know, and doesn't want you to get any definitive 
those statements, and it kind of wants you to wallow. And I've, I've struggled with both kind of, kinds of doubt, but when you're in that second kind of doubt where you're just, you feel like you're sinking and you can't get a handhold, books like 1 John are so helpful because it feels like someone threw you that life preserver, and at least it gives you just this sentence or two to contemplate, to think like, well, hey, do I obey God? Have I experienced the Spirit? What do I think about loving one another? And that's why I think 1 John is so helpful to people who are really struggling with the uncertainty of their relationship with God. So, how do we know with us? Well, we read books like 1 John, and we reflect, and we sit down, and we talk with people that love us and care about us, and we explore. But there's another kind of uncertainty that we can struggle with. Not just an uncertainty about my relationship with God, but an uncertainty about the person that's trying to teach me about God. So, for example, maybe a preacher who gets up on stage on a Sunday, how do you know that I am trying to explain the truth? How do you know that I'm earnest? How do you know that I'm sincere? How do you know that I'm not trying to figure out ways at home just to get you to like me and I'm just going to say whatever that I think people want to hear? How do you know that I'm actually saying something that's valuable and worth listening to? And John talks about that a lot as well. Years, uh, years ago, Corrine was in a car accident, and everybody was fine. It was just her and little Liam. He was just two at the time. And a person turned left in front of her, and she wasn't expecting him because she had a green light, and hit their car. And both cars were undrivable, and Corrine's turned out to be totaled. But it was maybe a slow day in Woodbury because we, <laughs> we ended up with like 12 police cars on the scene. It just looked like this crazy, insane thing was happening. And of course, Corrine calls me, and I show up. And there's all these police cars. And, uh, and then it's Corrine. Corrine and Liam, they're standing on the grass, and then they're standing next to this other couple that was in the other car. And I suppose if you're going to get in a car accident, and you're going to have to wait hours for the police and the insurance and all that stuff to sort it, itself out, these people were wonderful people to get in a car accident with. They were super friendly and chatty, and they talked, and you know, it was all really good. It was all really amicable. It wasn't mean. It was like, if you're going to get in a car accident, these are the kind of people you want to get in a car accident with. We all said our goodbyes, shook hands, said our goodbyes got in our, you know, the vehicles that people had come to pick us up in and uh, tried to figure out the insurance. And turns out this couple who we had been talking with for, I don't know, probably two hours were totally uninsured, had no insurance at all. And it was left on us to sort all that mess out. Now, it would have been nice because on the surface, they presented so friendly and kind and neighborly. It would have been nice if they said, hey, we're getting along so well. We just want you to know that this is really going to be a mess for you. You're going to have to really work through the insurance here. We're really sorry about that, but we don't have insurance and we just like to drive around town. You know, who knows what's going to happen. It would have been nice because they seemed totally trustworthy and they were totally not trustworthy, at least in this instance. Now imagine you're a first century human. You're just minding your own business when wanders into town an apostle. Let's say it's somebody like John who wrote this letter and John starts talking. Now there's no Bible app. There's no YouTube. There's no podcasts. There's no 24 hours news. There's not even a New Testament. There's nowhere else that you can go to hear what John is saying as a secondary source to validate his claims. There's nothing else. But you interact with John and you look 
look at his eyes, you hear his words, you watch his demeanor, you watch how he, he uh, conducts himself around town, and you think, I think this guy's telling the truth. I think this guy's life was transformed by this Jesus that he's talking about. And you believe, you buy into it, you say, this is true, I believe it. And then, baptism, start following Jesus, all that stuff. And then you start doing your thing, you start living your life, and maybe a few months, a few years later, somebody else comes along, and they claim to represent God. And they tell you, uh, so, so what have you heard? And you say, well, this is what John told me. And they say, oh, that's, so, that's so old school, that's so outdated. We have come up with great new innovations in the area of theology. And John just, he didn't really know what he's talking about. He meant well, but he just didn't have all the information that we have. And so what John told you is all wrong. Here's the latest and greatest. Well, how do you know? How do you know whether you believe John or whether you believe this, this new guy? And John talks about that as well. In uh, 126, I'm writing these things to you about those who are going to try, they're going to come and try to lead you astray. And he says, these are the types of things they're going to say in order to lead you astray. Uh, 2.4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands. And the truth is not in that person. So if somebody says, oh yeah, listen, I know God, me and God, we're tight. And you're like, that doesn't sound like what John was saying. That doesn't sound like what I've heard about God. That doesn't sound like the character of God. 3.7, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now these are broad statements, but they're valuable for saying somebody comes along and claims to be, uh, to be a representative of God, but their life is just a mess. Well, then wait a second. Let's put that on pause and say, should I really be accepting truth claims from this person? Or are they still in process? Are they still growing? And maybe we need to hold off until we let them be the one that's telling us exactly how it is all supposed to be. But come on, Patrick, surely a person couldn't be a preacher and not live right, right? That would never happen. You have never opened up the newspaper and seen some article about a preacher who is actually embezzling money from the church or doing something equally awful or scandalous. That never happens. No, it happens multiple times a day. There's like a news article and you're just like, what is going on? It's a mess. There are some terrible people who occupy stages and pulpits around the country. It's, it's, it's bad. I've been following this news story this past week. It's just a mess, and it makes you feel awful, and it's just, what is going on? Well, yeah, but I listen to this podcast, and surely they can't have a podcast unless they've been vetted or something. I mean, if, if, they, if they're saying the words and it's coming across to me through my phone into my earphones, well, that's got to be true, right? <laughs> no, all you need is a microphone and a Wi-Fi signal. Anybody can have a podcast. Well, what about a website? I mean, if they have a website, that means they're legit. Yeah? No. No. None of those things validate what a person is saying. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've had interactions with people where the, they say something completely contradictory to Scripture, but they proceed it by saying, I've read the entire Bible and that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything unless your character is character that's shaped by Jesus, unless you're trying to glorify God, unless you love others. None of those claims mean anything. You can tell everybody you're right all day long, but unless you look like Jesus or are trying to look like Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. And that's what John says over and over. In fact, check out chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. They're not from God. 
We have major religions in the United States that do not acknowledge Jesus, and John is saying they're not from God. Well, Patrick, you can't say that. Yes, you can, because John said it, and he had heard Jesus. He had seen Jesus. He had touched Jesus. In fact, John says those people, they are the Antichrist. Well, I thought the Antichrist was supposed to be some big, bad, scary person who was in charge of the whole world. No, it's anyone who denies who Jesus is. That's kind of wild. So, yeah, we should check out the books we're reading and the podcasts we're listening to and the, and the preachers that we listen to. We should ch- you should check out me. You should make sure that the Bible app or the Bible in your lap is in keeping with the things that I'm saying up here. You shouldn't just take my word for it. I'm doing my best, but you should look at my life. If my life's a mess, you should say, Patrick, you maybe need to take a break and get some other things straightened out. Because it doesn't matter what I say if I'm not living in keeping with what God has called me to do. In a world of religious complexity and confusion, John is helping us know. But there's more to what the whole book is doing. Um, do, you ever, do you ever get like a shoelace so knotted up that you just had to cut it off? Anybody? I give up real easy, by the way, so I'm pretty quick to cut them off. Uh, or maybe you've had a kid get gum in their hair, and you're like, hey, time for a new hairstyle, buddy. We're done with that one. That was fun while it lasted. Bubblicious. Made a mess of that. When you first read through 1 John, if you, those of you that have read it, of course, by the way, just a little pause. If you're going through our spiritual formation journey with us, you've actually read 1 John a couple weeks ago. Most of you are right in the thick of the book of Revelation. It's confusing as wild as that is. Uh, but if, you're, if you've read through 1 John, you might have thought, okay, this is good stuff, but it feels a little scattered. It doesn't feel very organized. It's like stream of consciousness. It's almost, it's almost like that eighth grader who showed up to school and didn't realize it was an oral report until the teacher called them up in front of class. And they're like, well, yeah, I don't know, zygotes and fish, and I don't know. I, you know and they're just kind of all over the place. Like, like the stuff he says is good, but it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of all over the place. Let me give you an example of this. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And you're like, wait a second, love keep what? His commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith, who is that has overcome the world? Only the one that believes that Jesus is the son of God. Now I, I read that in a little, a bit of a confusing way. I get that. But you read that and you're like, okay, there's a lot of good ideas, but I feel like I got to detangle it a little bit. And like, what, what exactly are you saying there? But I, but I submit to you that there's a genius design happening all through 1 John. When I was uh, 10 years old, I went fishing for the first and last time. I was with another friend of mine and his dad, and we were learning how to do the casting and the hooks and the worms and it's all gross and, you know, all that stuff anyway. And so, you know, my friend's murdering the worm with the hook, right, you know? And then he's getting ready to cast it into the pond where we were. And I was behind him. I was behind him doing something, and he goes back to cast, you know. You guys know where this is going. (laughs) And I'm messing around, and all of a sudden, you know, there's this tug on my finger. I don't feel the pain yet, but there's this tug. Now, my friend, he's also new. He's just like, what is going on? (laughs) 
and it starts to hurt so bad that I can't even scream. Like, I'm like, you know, I'm, I don't know. This might be it for me. I might die. This hook is embedded in my finger, and that might be it. It is my time to go. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. This world is not my home. That's what I'm thinking. So I got this hook embedded in my finger, and the kids, the other kids pulling away at it, and I'm like, and finally, the dad figures out what's going on, and he comes rushing over. Stop pulling and helping me. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but I've got a picture of a fish hook here. I know. <laughs> yeah, just, just for the visual. And I just want to warn you. I'm glad you haven't eaten yet, because this is how, this is how you get a hook out of a finger or something. Some of you are going to have to look away. The way you do it, what this dad had to do, is because of that little barb there, you have to push the hook the rest of the way through till that barb breaks the surface, and then you can clip the barb off, and then you have to pull that hook back out. <laughs> that's a good, good idea to plug your ears. All right. We're done with the gross part. But that's what had to happen to me because this had dug in so deeply. Now, that was the last time I went fishing. By the way, I just have this vivid memory. I don't know if it's true or not, but I have this vivid memory of the dad with this gross fishing knife that had been used to gut fish to do surgery on my finger. And I'm just, it just turned me off of fishing. It's not my thing. Some of you are going to come up to me afterwards and like, well, I'll take you. We'll do it right. It'll be, okay, whatever. Haven't been fishing since. That's a true story. I haven't been fishing since. Isn't that wild? Yeah. It's 34 years later. I have not been fishing since. <laughs> to get that barb out, you have to destroy the hook. You can't then use it subsequently to go fishing some more. You have to destroy the hook. If you carefully read John's letter, you'll notice that he is embedding important ideas together that you cannot separate without destroying the belief. This is really valuable. You'll see it all through 1 John. There are four things that John is trying to weave together so tightly that you cannot separate them. This is what he says. He says, he, notice there's different ideas here. Whoever says, I know him, that's God, by the way, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. You cannot separate a relationship or a connection or knowledge of God with obedience to God. You can't pull those ideas apart or you destroy what you believe about God. You cannot separate those. So if you say, I know God, but you don't do what God has asked you to do, you do not know God. That's the bottom line. Wait, that doesn't sound fair, Patrick. This, this is John talking. He heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. This is John talking. 29, uh, 2 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is in darkness. So if you have someone that you cannot stand, but you're like, but I love God, John is saying, no, you don't. You do not love God. 22. Who is the liar? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Meaning, Christ, anointed one, king. If Jesus doesn't have preeminence in your life, guess what? What does John say that you are? Well, Patrick, come on. This, this, high, this standard is so high, no one could ever live up to it. <laughs> I'm not the one making these words up. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who... This is going to be rough, by the way. Ready? Buckle up for this one. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And some of you are like, ah, I sinned this morning. 
On the way to church, I sinned. I was yelling at my kids. I'm in trouble, Patrick. Yeah, yes, that's what John is trying to help us understand. This is so important. You, he is embedding ideas together that you cannot separate. You cannot separate a life that is oriented around sin and doing the things that God has asked us not to do and still say you have a loving, strong connection relationship with God. You cannot do that, John is saying. The idea of God is this incredibly powerful, compelling idea. And people throughout history have wanted to make God work for them to control other people. I want God, but I don't want all that stuff about sin. I want God, but I don't want that mess of loving people. I want God, but not Jesus, because I really want to define God on my own terms, and I don't want Jesus to define him for me. So, but John places these barbs throughout this idea. So let's phrase it this way. This is maybe an oversimplification, but maybe it'll help us remember it. So we've got this idea of God, and the first thing that John says, he's like, hey, listen, right living matters. You don't have an accurate idea of God unless you are living right. You cannot have God, but live a life oriented towards sin. I'm either focused on God or I'm focused on sin. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. You will love the one and hate the other. That's just the way humans work. So right living but the second thing he says, and this is all through John, this is probably what John, 1 John is most famous for, is real loving. You cannot say you love God. You cannot have God, but not love people. You cannot, if you try to separate those ideas, you will lose who God is. And then finally, John says a real idea, a real definition of Jesus. You cannot have God, but define Jesus your own way. Now remember, 1 John 5, 1 through 6, I read it kind of goofy, it seemed like a jumble of ideas. I want you to go back and see what he's actually doing, because it's, 1 John 5, 1 through 6 is just this beautiful knot of ideas that can't be separated. If you believe in Jesus, you're born of God. Awesome. Good news. If you're born of God, you love people. That's great. If you love people, well, you're obeying God's commands. If you're obeying God, you have overcome the world. You've overcome sin. That's wonderful. You overcome the world because you believe in Jesus. And then it goes right back to the top. Do you see how this, this, this beautiful weaving of these ideas that just can't be separated? You cannot live a life your own way and think that you have some sort of a solid, stable connection to God. Period. It's just the, it's just the end of story. So some of you are like, oh boy, okay, uh, <laughs> that sounds bad, because I think I'm in trouble. But let me give you a little bit of hope and a little bit of a challenge. I was uh, watching a movie with one of my daughters, and it was one of those survival movies. You know, I really like those movies where the whole world is falling apart, but then there's this band of survivors that has to join together and, you know, like... Whatever, it could, be, it could be earthquakes or zombies. I just like all those movies. Uh, so something bad was happening in the world. as a virus or an apocalypse or whatever. And so this group has to struggle to stay, stay alive. And me and my daughter are watching this. And she's like, I, I don't think I would even try if that happened. I would just lay down and die. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I clearly did not raise you right. I, I'm like, literally, I watch those movies and I'd be like, I would be last man standing. I mean, I'm think like, I can't wait for the apocalypse because that's going to be fun. Not, not really, not really. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. My instinct is you fight to the bitter end. I mean, sure, it's hard, but you can do it. You can do it. And she's like, nope, I would just lay down and just let the end come. <laughs> 
Now, if you are like me, there are some verses in 1 John that, that make me sweat. They raise my heart rate a little bit. They tap into that, that guiltometer in my, my life. They make me a little nervous. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. <laughs> it's pretty direct. 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you not love? Are there some people you don't love? Oof, yeah. But verses like this make me nervous. 4.8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Do I really love? Here's the deal. Let me wrap up with this. You should be uncomfortable reading these verses. If you're not uncomfortable reading these verses, maybe you are not reading these very seriously, and maybe you are not taking God very seriously. It should make you reflective. Do, do I love my coworker, my family member, my neighbor, my spouse, <laughs> my children? Do I love? Or have we just sort of laid down and given up? We don't even try anymore. You know what? There, there are those of you in this room that have given up. You don't try. It's called apathy, and it's a spiritual death that is so hard to recover from. It's so hard to recover from because it's hard for God to find a pulse in apathetic people to revive, but he can do it. So let me, let me offer these as, as we close as challenges to us. Number one, do I fight sin or do I fight conviction? Do I fight sin or do I fight conviction? John doesn't say you will never sin. In fact, he starts his letter off by saying the person who claims that they don't sin is making God a liar. But he's saying continue to sin, meaning your life is oriented toward sin versus oriented toward God. Do I fight sin or do I fight conviction? Do I really love people or do I rarely love people? Do I only love the people that I'm related to or that look like me or that believe like me? Or that vote like me? Do I really love people or do I rarely like people? Do I actively follow or mostly ignore Jesus? I mean, I, I think a lot of us know we've got to change. But the danger is, is that I'm going to say this and some of you are going to feel a brief bit of conviction and you're going to think like, oh yeah, Patrick's right, I really should do this thing. And then you're going to leave and forget all about it, which James says is like looking in a mirror and forgetting what you look like. And you have to be determined to make some changes, to reorient your life around Jesus. You have to do that. We can't do it for you. We need to reevaluate where our hearts are, who we're oriented towards. Are we about ourselves? Or are we about Jesus? And I think that's what 1 John does is it challenges us. It challenges us to be focused on God. And if that's not who you are, then it's time to fix that. It's time to revive that person.